The drive-through is GTM's monthly news episode and is sponsored in part by organizations like hpdejunkie.com, Hooked on Driving, AmericanMuscle.com, CollectorCarGuide.net, Project Motoring, Garage Style Magazine, and many others. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor of the drive-through, look no further than www.gtmotorsports.org. Click About and then Advertising. Thank you again to everyone that supports Grand Touring Motorsports, our podcast, Break Fix, and all the other services we provide. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to the drive-thru, our monthly recap where we put together a menu of local racing and random car adjacent news. I'm your host, Brad. With me, as always, is Eric. Heyo! And we also have Tanya. Hello! Now let's pull up to window number one for some industry news. I would like to talk about BMW. Before you all change the channel, BMW has announced, well, their M division has announced that they're going to finally make a touring. For those of you that don't know, touring means wagon. And BMW has never made an M3 wagon. The closest they ever got was the E46 where they made a prototype. And there have been all kinds of conversions where people have taken regular three series wagons and converted them to, with all the M you know, parts and all that good stuff. Well, BMW M has confirmed today that they are going to finally release one. It's going to be built on the same chassis as the M3 sedan and the M4 coupe. It's going to have the same motor, the same everything. It's going to be basically the same car, just the long roof edition. You know, all the, the long roof fans in the club rejoice. Yay! Here's the problem, though. There's several. Well, the, the one glaring problem for us is that it is not coming to the U.S. Uh, no surprise there. What are some of the other problems, Eric? You say there's several. Well. Other, other than the fact that it's a BMW. Well, uh, yeah, and that's, that's, that's my leading problem. The second problem <laughs> is that grill, because if it looks anything like the current M3, you can keep it. Oh, my uh, God. The, <laughs> the spy photos that Road and Track posted of the back were just a rendering, and that was, you know, a wide body version of the current 3 Series, which I'm okay with from that rear angle, but the rest of it, mm, not so much. If from a usability standpoint, and I know that's not the point of our performance wagon, but if it's anything like the current 3 Series wagons, it's pretty much useless and just buy an M3 and call it a day. You're not really missing out on a whole lot. I will say there's a, probably an upside to it in the fact that even though we'll never see it, it is going to be available in a manual transmission. So plus a million points to BMW for putting a standard in well, it. Well, that's, that's the lower model. I mean, the lower model of the M3. Now, if you want to get the competition model with the 30 more horsepower and the all-wheel drive optional, they did away with the manual. It's got to be automatic only. I'm suspecting it's probably got something to do with the manual probably has a hard time dealing with the torque numbers or, or something. I mean, that's the excuse that a lot of these manufacturers have started to give lately, but it's still a disappointment. An all-wheel drive manual wagon with close to 500 horsepower. I mean, sign me up if that's yeah, the case, except I, for uh, signing without one from, you know, BMW. Yeah, exactly. Caveat. And the competitors too at the Audi and the Mercedes, uh, you know, the RS4, RS6s, and the Mercedes E63 wagons, we're never going to see those either. I mean, wagons, as we covered in a later episode that our listeners uh, will be, enjoy, the wagons are in the United States are basically dead at this point. I was going to say, so if you've got the money for an M3 Touring in the U.S., go out and buy yourself a Porsche Macan S. I would agree with that statement, and you'd probably be much happier at the end of the day. Exactly. Tanya, we know how you feel about the wagons. How do you feel about this story? Um, I could care less. 
She she checked out at Wagon, at BMW, at M, at, at Automatic, all at, of those things. At not coming to the U.S. She she has not been a part of this story at all. All the boxes got checked right from the headline. <laughs> well, Pooh. Anyway. You had me at Giant Kidney Grill, and I walked away. Oh, my God. That grill looks like – how is that legal? I mean, that's why it's not coming to the U.S. See, it's not legal. It does not have the pedestrian I, crash guards. I just want to know who the engineer at BMW was that was at Waffle House and was staring at the cook going, you know what? That's a good idea for what a grill should look like. It looks like a waffle maker that's wide open. I, they, were clear, just, they were clearly looking at a largemouth bass. And they just said, let's put two of them together, and there's our new grill. You know, it's the, not the kidney, it's the bass. It's the upside to the aftermarket of the new BMWs is that all the tuners are going to make the grills look like the old cars. So that, I guess there's the plus. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of crazy town, I think that is the new name for Detroit these days because there is all sorts of bonkers going on. We got CEOs stepping down. Jim Hackett from Ford is out. We've got GM still suing Chrysler over like secret clandestine moles and they're playing spy versus spy and offshore accounts. I mean, it's like the next edition of James Bond is going on between Fiat and Chrysler and, and, and GM. And then we've got on the same same token, uh, Caesar, their Rimini. Cesare Rimini. Yeah, right. Who brought Fiat through all the tough times through the darkness. He's like the Iacocca of fiat has passed away so there's all sorts of turmoil there's all sorts of upheaval and when you read all these different articles that we're going to put out there you're still wondering what happened to the merger between fiat peugeot and all the rest of that which nobody's talking about right now and then on top of it all they've decided they're going to come up with a new name for the company yeah yeah so so yeah they're changing the company name to stellantis Stellantis. Stellantis. Uh, let's go to Atlantis oh, and a Stellantis. I mean, I mean, what are these people? What are they doing over there? They're like, drinking I, absinthe. Yeah, yeah, I don't understand. Well, apparently, the word is rooted in the Latin verb stella, meaning to brighten with stars, which I don't know if I fully agree with that, but stella in Italian is star. <laughs> Yeah, but why couldn't we have just called it Atlantis? They could have had Aquaman as their mascot. Because Atlantis is trademarked. There's an entire resort. There's an Did entire city under the water. You can't just take a whole city. Yes, the, 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 res the, the Atlantans or the resident people from the city of Atlantis lost under the sea have a copyright. <laughs> I was just thinking about it because it would have made sense with like the, the trident. The Maserati logo would have made total sense there. And then, you know, the cars are starting to look like fish nowadays anyway. So it would have been completely thematic. We could have had these really cool, like, fish scale paint jobs, like the old uh, the, the Ford Mystique, where it would turn green and purple and change. I think it, it, there's a whole theme that they're missing out on here. But this Stellantis thing, do not understand what is going on over there. I mean, they have lost their minds. As long as they continue to make the Hellcat. <laughs> I'm okay with whatever else they do. <laughs> well, and and that's that's part of the whole, you know, the lawsuit thing and the labor with with GM and Fiat. I mean, it's just like, what is going on? Like, why does GM even care at the end of the day what Fiat Chrysler is up to? Like, let them just go build their muscle cars. Are you jealous because the C8 is a disappointment? Moving on. So, Brad, you've got some other Detroit news. What have you got for us? So, yeah, Chevy just came out with a C8 Corvette. 
Everybody's heard about it. It's, you know, it made the rounds about, you know, what, three, four, five, six months ago. That's not what we're talking about right now. Right now, we're going to talk about the outgoing C7 and the C7 ZR1. Because apparently at the time, Chevrolet claimed that the C7 ZR1, you know, with its 6.2 liter supercharged motor, a V8, 755 horsepower, its top speed was claimed to 212 miles an hour. That's the official number from Chevrolet. Really? Yep. Well... It turns out the car can go just a little bit quicker. With the optional eight-speed automatic transmission fitted with the low downforce aero setup, not the uh, you know giant wings and all that stuff that some of us have seen at the track, it can get to a whopping 214 miles per hour. I got to say, that's pretty impressive. That it's knocking on the doors of your, what, your LaFerraris and your 918s and all those McLaren P1s. I mean, for a car that costs a fraction of the cost, that's pretty damn awesome. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and whether you like the design of the C7 or not, I mean, styling is, is an acquired taste in a lot of cases. It's a pretty slippery car compared to some of the old ones. There's a lot of engineering in that. I've had the luxury of riding in many C7s on NCM at the factory test track. Phenomenal car, absolutely phenomenal car. But to know that the ZR1, you know, that kind of final hoorah for that car, that it can do well over 200 miles an hour is that's impressive. I never, I I thought figured the top speed on a, on a Corvette was probably 170, 180 at best. But over 200, whew. And on a, on a standard Corvette, you're probably right. It's probably around 180, 186, something like that. But yeah, the ZR1 with the giant blower on top and, you know, and the, the correct aerodynamic bits. Yeah, 214 miles an hour. It's Dang. That is commendable. I mean, I, I tip my hat to Chevrolet for, for creating something like that that costs, what were they new, like 120,000? Yeah. Yeah. So. And that's the fastest corvette basically yeah yeah production corvette because when you look at the old sledgehammers and the lingenfelters and all those specialty callaways and all that stuff they would do over 200 back in the 80s but they also had like 12 turbos and they were completely gutted and everything else and they could do it once and then you never again you'd have to take hours to cool down yeah you needed a parachute and six miles to slow the thing down because it had you know 10 speed bicycle brakes and you couldn't go to the dealership buy the car and then go have a warranty with it and run this, this run. Yeah. So that's, that's awesome. So, yeah. wow. Wow. Really cool. So what else about Corvettes here? You mentioned the C8. Sticking with the Corvette, we're going to go with the C8 now and a little bit of news. The C8 has its first recall. Apparently they try to eat people. Now what? it's not like, it's not like the Mustangs eating people at the uh, cars and coffee and stuff like that. It's nothing like that. The problem is with the frunk, you know, Chevy, this is their, their first official foray in a, you know, in a mid-engine Corvette. So they've got a little bit of space up front and that's where people can store their bag with their new balances and their gold chains and stuff. Well, there's a recall because apparently when you turn the car off, the frunk release button doesn't activate. Apparently the, the voltage to wake the car up is too high and the, the button, it won't activate. So God forbid your, your new balance are stuck in the frunk. <laughs> You got your junk in the frunk. Yeah, you got your <laughs> junk in the frunk. Apparently, you can't get them out with the car turned off. Now, Chevy is fixing this with an over-the-air, if, if, if you want, uh, update to your system, or you can go to the dealership and have it fixed. Basically, they're lowering the, the voltage requirement to have the button active. I've been waiting, and then I just read 
the article title, Chevy recalls the C8 Corvette because people can get trapped inside the front trunk. Why are you inside the front trunk? Because there's also another problem with the trunk. They pop up at speed. What? There's been a, are you there, serious? There's, there's been a number of issues where the trunk, because they can't figure out how to keep it latched, it will pop up at speed. Now, luckily, at the HOD event we were all just at, there was a C8 Corvette there. I did not hear anything about him and his frunk popping up. Uh, but, you know, and he was in my run group, so I didn't see that happen. But That yeah. explains the blue painter's tape holding the front down. I, yeah. I get it now. <laughs> it happens. Wow. So it, it sounds like some backwards wiring there. Yeah. Won't, stay, won't stay closed when it's running and won't open when it's turned off. That is, wow. It seems like they just need to switch those two wires, and you're good. So... Uh, we got another article here I think we want to dive into, and it recently crossed our desk thanks to one of our other members. The 22 best GT cars, and GT standing for Grand Touring Cars, that Road and Track put out uh, not too late, within this month of August here. So do we want to go through that? I mean, I scrolled through the carousel, and there's only about four or five cars I actually care about. How about you guys? I don't know what the criteria were for the best uh, GT cars. Like, what is the price point or anything? Because there are some cars on this list that I would never be able to afford. I can't even dream of how much it would cost to afford one of those cars. And then there are some that are like, uh, oh, there's a Corvette on the list. Yeah, there's a a Ford Mustang and then there's a McLaren. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The the oddest comparison was, yeah, there's the Mustang and then right underneath it, the Ferrari 812 Superfast. Yes, those two cars are really, really good to compare. Well, I mean, as you go through this, here's where I was turned off by the article, right? So first car on the list, Ferrari 456, right? Or 456 GT. It's a GT car. It's a two plus two. There's certain requirements to be a GT car, right? Extended body, two doors, et cetera. And I think the 456 is an underappreciated car. I like the look of it. However, I'm a much bigger fan of the 550 Maranello. It's a much prettier car, you know, but it's, it's based on the 456 or, or it's an evolution of the 456, I should say. But when you scroll to the next one in the carousel, it's the C8 Corvette. Like, when did a mid-engine sports car become a grand tour? How did that classification change? It makes absolutely no sense. And then they flip back and it's like, oh, well, here's the bangle version of the M6, which it is a GT car. And I don't necessarily mind it with the right wheel package and body kit and things like that. But as you scroll, as you guys said, you scroll through this list and it's like Bentley Continental GT convertible. And I'm like, well, first of all, You know, you're, you're, it seems like a lot of these because the car has GT in the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then and then and then there's a sedan. There's the RS7. What uh, the hell? Yeah. I was like, what? I mean, so this list was a little bit all over the map, but some of the rest of these, yes, the Aston Martin Vanquish. I'm like the Rolls Royce Wraith. Yeah, and the DBS Superleggera, and like all this other stuff on the list, and I'm like, you know, the 928 quintessential GT car. Yes. Checks the box. Again, these are the cars I cared about, but they're also, you know, 30 years old, right? You start looking at the Jag and the Porsche and the Ferrari, and those were true GT Boulevard cruisers, but the 911, like 911's never been a GT car. But nowadays it is, it's gotten bigger. It's gotten fatter. I think people are considering the 911, the GT car and the Cayman is the sports car now, but I got to tip my hat to whoever the gray-haired soul at Road and Track that was writing this article that put in the E-Type Jag. Because out of all the cars that are there, that's the best one. 
hands down. If I, and that's the oldest one of the bunch uh, in this group. I mean, granted, they had the hairdresser's car in there, you know, the BMW 850 and all that kind of stuff. But having the E-Type was the right move on that list. But the rest of these modern ones, I think they could have separated this into modern GT cars versus classic GT cars because they just don't hold a candle to each other. Okay, so real quick, then let's just go through one, two, three. What car on this list would you have? I would go with the 928. Tanya? I would go with the Mercedes SL. And I would take the LC500 Lexus. Sounds like a plan. Hey, at least we've picked something off the list. So what's next? Vehicles that are out the door for 2021. So yeah, there's a few cars on here that I'm sure Tanya will be saddened to see go away. One of them being a carryover from last month's episode, the Chevrolet Impala. I know you're saddened to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, it is not a bad looking car compared to previous versions. But yeah, Chevrolet GM has finally decided that it is out the door. And along with it is the much loved Chevy Sonic. You know, we're all going to miss that car. Sadder about that than the Impala, that's for sure. Along with that, you know, a staple in many a large family's garage or driveway is the Dodge Grand Caravan. The Caravan is out in favor of the Pacifica and the base model Voyager. The Dodge Journey, which is actually a Fiat of some sort, is also out the door. It should have been gone three years ago, if you really read about it. But, you know. It should have been gone the first one that was made it's true but you know they decided to keep that going for a while and that's okay now sports car enthusiasts will be disappointed to know that the two-door hondas are out they are following the trend of vw and there will be no more two-door hondas so the civic coupe and the civic si two-door are gone along with anything else that's got two doors from honda which isn't a whole lot of things but your only option there is the you know four-door civic and, and the other cars along with that the honda fit is out the Lexus GS, the Lincoln Continental, which I thought was actually really disappointing because if you like a large Luxo boat, the Continental was a very striking car. I was really excited to see it come back a couple of years ago that they brought back that moniker. Again, really impressive car, great proportions, you know, much better styling than the 300. And I'm a fan of the 300. And I just think that the Lincoln is a really good looking car. I I think they screwed up with the Continental that they didn't give it suicide doors. I think had they given it suicide doors, it, it would still be around. Possibly. They sold a lot more. Of and them. I don't think they marketed it very well at the end of the day. At the same time, you know, it was inevitable that the Lincoln MKZ was out the door because as we know, the Mondeo has been retired. Sorry, for those of us on this side of the ocean, the Ford Fusion is gone and the Mark Z or the MKZ is built on that same platform. And so it's no shock that the MKZ is out the door. Now, the next one is one that Mr. Kafisi is going to be really saddened by. This is true. The Mercedes SLC SLK, the, the little kind of toad grasshopper Mercedes is gone. The, you know, the smallest convertible that they have. I can't say I'm going to miss the styling of it. It just, this last version is, yeah. What's interesting though, is that Mercedes is getting rid of this, but BMW just released the new Z4. Right. Which is a, a direct competitor. Right, exactly. So maybe, maybe it'll be back. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they're just better off sticking to a slightly larger convertible. I've always felt that the SLK was a little too tight. But... Uh, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> There's some others on the list, you know, the BMW i8, the Alfa Romeo 4C, which 
you know, I, I've only seen three of those and they've only been at track events. You don't see them on the street. A couple of Acuras, you know, stuff like that. I think the only other one that I was kind of surprised to see go, and maybe it's because people are, are moving away from the subcompact market, is the Yaris or the Yaris, depending on how you pronounce I'm it. I'm very disappointed because this means there is definitely no way that the GR Yaris, the homologated rally version, will ever <laughs> make it across the shores. <laughs> Looks cool. It does, and it also puts a very big question mark on next year's WRC series, which I'm the only follower of in this club, I think. Well, they're kicking butt. The Yaris is <laughs> They are. Butt. Exactly. And so what are they going to campaign next year? The Corolla hatchback? Because it's slightly larger. Which, that, that's probably it. But it gives way for Hyundai to run something bigger. It gives way for all the other manufacturers to run slightly larger cars because they had to stay within a certain size. And the Corolla is bigger than the Yaris. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes the WRC landscape next year. However, you'll probably still see the GRs or the Gazoo Racing Yaris's run in WRC2, where you still see the Polos and a lot of the Skodas and the smaller cars or the older chassis cars are still running in that, that subclass of WRC. So it'll be, it would be really cool to see what happens next year. So what are the chances that we can get a number of GTM members together? We go out, we all buy Toyota Yaris's and we start our own little club series. Uh, next to zero? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You guys have no, no imagination. <laughs> B-spec racing for everybody. I think this would be more like D or E-spec racing. Yeah. talking about. Not if you had the GR Yaris. 257 horsepower. True, true, true. Pretty good. All the broken axles you can ask for. But I'll put it to you this way. I'm waiting for the Alpha GTA to come, right? Which we saw at Salem's last year, which is the golf-sized Alfa Romeo, which is rear-wheel drive with a two-liter turbo. And there's been rumors that it was coming to the U.S. and I still haven't seen it yet because believe me, I would line up for that car. So you can keep your Honda Fits and your Yaris's and your Fiestas because if that Alpha comes, that's going to be the hot ticket. It's going to be a GTI killer. See, uh, see what, what had, had happened was Fiat had their money in their savings account and they got to transfer the monies over to the check-ins account so they can move the Alphas over here. Yeah, but they was in the Cayman Islands thanks to GM. So, you I know. know. <laughs> But, you know, it was funny that that article dropped about cars that are out for 2021 because WTOP, which is the local news station here in the, in the DMV, posted an article about a week later talking about the best cars for teens to pick up in 2020. And so as I was, I was scrolling through this list, cars like the Honda Fit and the Yaris are, are on this list. And I'm like, yeah, but they're out the door. But it got me thinking, when I was driving at 16 years old, I was driving a 10 year old car and that seemed to be the thing. You bought something that was a decade old, 12 years old, maybe on the new side, eight years old, but I wasn't running out to the dealership and buying a brand new Corolla or a Honda Fit or, or any of the cars that are on this list. And they're all Econo boxes, you know, except for, you know, let's say the exception of the Ford Escape and the Kia Optima and some of these larger cars that are on this list. I don't know. I mean, I think about it in re with respect to my eldest daughter who, you know, she'll be 16 in 10 years. So the cars that are coming out now would be the cars that she might be driving at, at 10 years old. I don't know that I want to put her in any of these and any of the ones that are on this list, to be honest with you, because the price tag for a lot of these is, you know, best new SUV for teens at $35,000. The Nissan Rogue. I'm like, 
Really? I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say it right now, and people can flame me all they want. If you spend more than five grand on a car for your 16 year old kid, you're doing it wrong. You're doing that? it wrong. No, 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 no. You're 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 an effing idiot. I don't care what you say. You've lost all credibility to me. <laughs> yeah, I just can't see. I mean, I get it because you get the door to door warranty and all that kind of stuff, or bumper to bumper warranty and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know. I, I wouldn't pick any of the cars on this list for my 16 year old right now. Looking back 10 years, let's just talk about that. Is there a car that you guys would pick as a recommendation for a 16-year-old starting out now? Kind of thinking about a car from 2010 that would be in that five dollars to $7,000 range. Is there something that just pops out? Volkswagen Rabbit. Any Volkswagen. A Jetta. A Golf. Honda, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, a Toyota Corolla. I mean, there's a lot of options there that you could save a lot of money. And those cars are still kicking strong. I mean, to your point, Brad, a Mark V Rabbit with a two and a half liter five cylinder, those motors are bulletproof. They run forever. And, you know. They're simple to work on too. Compared exactly. to, to they, they, yeah, they're they're German and they've got some, some little eccentricities to them, but they're still pretty damn simple to work on. The 2.5 liter has been around forever, the five it's, cylinder. Exactly. And any of the old Hondas and even, I mean, let's face it, you could buy your kid an HHR. It would still be probably a better investment than a brand new Nissan Rogue or a Kia Optima. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, as much as I regret saying that, and you heard the words come out of my mouth, but. <laughs> but you know what the people of today are doing? They're going out and they're buying their children, those $65,000 Bugatti electric cars. That's yes. what they're doing. I forgot about that. You're right. They've already, they have a ton of practice. So realistically, the Kia is a down step. It's a much cheaper vehicle than the all electric Bugatti that they've been driving around in. Agreed. All right. All sarcasm aside, let's jump into our new section we call Jolt Cola. Where we cover electric car news. Electric car and maybe electric adjacent, depending how you look at it. So the first one up here is a follow-on article to the Sony Vision S. It's actually an original debut of this back in the beginning of the year in January, and then there's been more developments recently on what this prototype vehicle from, yes, Sony, as in, you know, Sony Electronics, creating an, an EV for the modern day. So the Vision S, according to the Car and Driver article, it's equipped with 33 sensors. It's got LiDAR, radar, cameras, you name it. It's got a 360 degree immersive audio system. It's got a panoramic screen that stretches across the entire dashboard. There's no mention of a PS5 going to be installed in it. Oh. But but granted, the PS5 isn't out yet, so there's still time, right? So I mean, really, what's the deal here? This came out as a surprise, basically, unveiling at the Consumer Electronics Show. And people thought they were, I think, going to go see news about a PlayStation 5. And instead, they unveiled this Vision S vehicle. So in terms of specs, it's on an all-wheel drive platform, which isn't surprising because apparently there is some collaboration with the Austrian company Magna Sire, who back in the day created the four-wheel drive system on the Mercedes G-Class and whatnot. The car alleges a top speed of 149 miles an hour, a zero to 60 in 4.8 seconds. It weighs a honking 5,180 Oh my God. Apparently. 
I'm, I'm guessing those sensors are really heavy <laughs> along with that 360 sound system. At the end of the day, it's really unclear. Nobody's sure why Sony is doing this. Uh, I would suspect personally that it's more about the technology and what they can bring to cars versus the car itself. They're just, the car is the platform to display all their fancy gadgetry and it, it's not an unattractive vehicle, but it's very similar looking to a Tesla. So I'm going to throw in my two cents here. If we have any IT people listening, this is equivalent to the Sony VAIO laptops of the early 2000s, right? They brought nothing to the market other than some flash and panache and Sony specific things. But otherwise it was just a Toshiba laptop like anything else. And I think that's exactly the, the point that, uh, that you're making here. There's these Sony electronic proprietary things that they wanna bring to the show. And it might be a rebadged car from somebody else because I don't think Sony's got the tooling to create a car, right? It just- Well, that's I, why they were, that's why they've been partnering it seems with some people that actually know how to build cars right? yeah. for that development, for the chassis work, et cetera. So I'm thinking this car is not, I mean, I know it was displayed at the consumer electronics show, but maybe it's not directed at us. Maybe it's directed at other auto manufacturers. I just changed the stereo in my truck. It's a Panasonic. Maybe they're trying to steal some of that business and sell to the manufacturers. Look at all these cool things that we can put into your car. I just want to know if I can buy a Sony Vision S at Best Buy because it's the only place I can figure out is where I would be able to get one. How many reward zone points do I get when I buy it? <laughs> You'll be able to buy a PS5 for free. <laughs> you better, yeah, you better believe it. That's like the demon package, right? For an extra dollar, you get a PS5 in the trunk. <laughs> the clip with Project Cars 3. All right, Tanya, what else you got on the list? So the next one is maybe electric adjacent. I mean, not really, because it's, it's a hydrogen vehicle and hydrogen is used to power an electric motor. So it's still hydrogen fuel cell powered cars are still considered EVs. This article again comes from Car and Driver and it's about the Hyperion XP1, which is a 221 mile an hour hydrogen powered hypercar. So just as a little background here for folks who have not heard of Hyperion, this is straight from their website. They were founded in 2011 by an expert team of PhDs. Hyperion is a technology company that consists of three divisions, Hyperion Energy, Hyperion Motors, and Hyperion Aerospace, all focused on hydrogen-based power and delivery. They're based in Orange, California, Hyperion delivers cutting-edge space technology pioneered by NASA to the world. From road vehicles to space travel, Hyperion seeks to completely revolutionize the transportation industry by offering convenient, high-quality, low-cost hydrogen fuel across America. And as a quote from the CEO, there are enough car companies or an energy company that's building this car to tell a story. So again, it's, it's a little bit less about the actual car, which is super futuristic looking and, you know, hypercar looking, but it's more about the power plant, the fuel cell technology using the hydrogen. So what it's all about, they're claiming zero to 60 in 2.2 seconds, a top speed of 221 miles an hour with a range of just over 1,000 miles. Granted, I'm sure that's not at 221 miles an hour, but nonetheless, it's also a carbon titanium monocoque chassis. And unlike the Vision S, the curb weight is around 2,200 pounds. It's very lightweight. 
further on with the spec, so it's not out yet. So they've got their, their prototype here, but it's slated to go into production in 2022. So it's still two years out. It's going to be a very limited run, apparently only 300 cars. Um, it will be an all-wheel drive setup, and we'll have a three-speed transmission with ultra capacitors to buffer the output of the fuel cell. The body also includes active aero elements that double as solar panels. The double barrel exhaust stacks are functional, but all that comes out is deionized water vapor. So that is straight from the car and driver article. Does it play engine sounds in the interior like the BMWs? There was no mention of that. I and thought the Hyperion was the shuttle that they used, the big space station in Andromeda. I thought that I, was... I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> that was the, the Hyperion. But my other question is, how big is the frunk and does it stay closed at 200 miles an hour? They did not mention any alleged eating of people. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I guess we'd be remiss without talking about hydrogen a little further because the minute you say hydrogen, usually people just go with Hindenburg. <laughs> So now because of this disaster, everyone thinks hydrogen is going to be a gigantic death trap. And there's tons of conspiracy theories, I guess, around questioning of what really happened. Was it sabotage? Was it Hitler ordered it to be, you know, exploded, et cetera, et cetera. Or did just something go wrong, right? And spark ensued and the hydrogen exploded or, you know, caught on fire. As it will, because it's very flammable. So Hyperion, obviously, they have to address this because it's going to be a big concern to people. I'm driving around Hindenburg, right? And they said, quote, you can throw our tanks off a building or shoot them with a high-powered rifle. They won't rupture. They're seemingly, with their PhDs and their NASA friends, are spending a lot of time trying to develop the fuel tank to be safe. And what it is, apparently, is carbon fiber construction. So I would guess that they're probably pretty thick tanks. And carbon fiber anything generally isn't necessarily cost-effective. So that's definitely one thing they still need to tackle is how do we make you know, that strength, but also cost effective for mass production into, into vehicles. I think if they can crack that nut and get the affordability down, they've got something interesting. So, you know, someone might say still be stuck on the Hindenburg and why would we bother with hydrogen? I, I mean, I could see the rebuttal to that because it's, it's the Challenger effect. And I'm not talking about the Dodge. I'm talking about the space shuttle where, you know, it wasn't this, that, or the other, it was an O-ring, it was a coupler, it was whatever. It's something else in the system that then causes a cascading failure, right? And so I think hydrogen being so volatile, and it does have a stigma, unfortunately, thanks to thanks to the Hindenburg, much like diesel has a stigma, rotaries have a stigma, there, every engine type has its own problem. It, it, you know, ICEs have, or internal combustion engines have been have outlasted the rest of them because at the end of the day, even that is a controlled explosion, but it's the safest of its alternatives, right? So I'm a little bit apprehensive of hydrogen as well. And I think maybe a lot of our listeners would probably be disappointed because, you know, if something did come out, it's kind of like the early adopters of, of Tesla's or all electric vehicles. It's like, well, where am I going to get the fuel? You know, do, how does that work? What's the distribution network? Well, I'll address two things there. First, the volatile comment is somewhat misleading because it's volatile in so much that oxygen is present and a ignition source. So again, I mean, you can have as much hydrogen sitting open here and as long as nobody lights a match, nothing's gonna happen. Granted, electrostatic issues could cause, you know, maybe it to catch on fire. 
that's actually one thing that they think happened with the Hindenburg. There might have been some uh, electrostatic stuff going on. Uh, they did like they did have a leak, but then electrostatic caused a spark, and then and everything caught on fire. But I mean, I think if they can get if they can seal the hydrogen off, if the system sealed off well, I mean, there, there's risk. I think the risk can probably be mitigated. I mean, it's no different than anything else necessarily catching on fire. But the thing is, this isn't the first hydrogen vehicle. No. I mean, Honda, Honda, I'm looking at it right now. Honda offers, a, yeah, Honda has the clarity. It's a hydrogen powered car. Chevrolet back in with the early 90s came out with a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. BMW had a prototype. I mean, there's been a several attempts at this yeah. before. I mean, the Toyota has one right now. I think part of their, I don't think they're displaying the range that this is displaying. So I think this is well, actually not. a huge, significant improvement to the technology. And they're trying to make improvements to the safety to make people, you know, feel more secure. Additionally, to address the other point you brought up around fueling, this company is also trying to set up a network of hydrogen fueling stations. And what they're saying is, given the range, you need far less hydrogen fueling stations because you're going to be go, you're going to get to go farther. So yeah. So I got to drive to Road Atlanta to get to. Dakota. So that's how I'm going to get fuel, right? I mean, that doesn't make sense. That's not a good way to do it because that's not the paths that people travel on. Now you're forcing traffic to go a specific way because it's the only way you can get your fuel source from. I can't fill up at home. I can't fill up outside of sheets. I, you know, that, that's kind of a weird way to do it. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't buy that. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, same things with electric cars and where you plug it in. Yeah. At any rate, I think I'm interested to see where they develop the technology. Sure. I, I find it interesting. It's much more environmentally friendly in terms of emissions than your standard ICE engine. There's arguments to be had around, well, how are you making the hydrogen? It'll be interesting to see what they come up with if they're actually able to produce their 300 cars in two years. So what's next, Tanya? So the next one on the list is the Cadillac unveiling of their new electric SUV, supposed to be their flagship, I think, electric SUV model. And it is called... The Escalade. <laughs> it is called the Lyric. Now, there's some debate around the pronunciation of it. Um, the Lyric. It's spelled L-Y-R-I-Q. So, you know, people are going to be confused on how to pronounce it when you try to Wikipedia it and they don't give you any pronunciation for it. I was further confused when I saw Cadillac was actually showing it all capital letters. And then I was wondering what it could possibly stand for. I didn't come up with anything good. So I, I was trying harder to peruse the, the origins of this name. So I did find on GM Authority website, um, they have a little blog there and they were explaining the origin. So apparently the IQ is going to be the new suffix, basically, I think for all their electric cars. What it says is, additionally, the IQ suffix names provide a sort of alteration of sorts for Cadillac brand cars. With Cadillac and the model name both ending in an ick sound, these names roll off the tongue quite well. I didn't realize it was a Cadillac. It's a Cadillac, <laughs> but... So is the next one going to be called the Brick, B-R-I-Q? And then there's the Stick. Mm, the Trick, the Flick. <laughs> the Lick. <laughs> about the Escaladic. Oh, this is terrible. What are they thinking? Apparently, there's a Celestic. 
I didn't know that. There is that made by Stel Is that made by Stellantis? I don't know, but feel better that it's not, it's two years out. So maybe they'll maybe they'll go with the whole naming convention change. They've got plenty of time to make it worse now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, either way, it's 50-50 right now. <laughs> but that brings up a good point. Have you seen the back of this thing? From the side, it reminded me of a smushed Range Rover. And from the back, it looks like a car I saw in the junkyard. Like it, it was in a, it was rear-ended by a semi. Like what were they thinking? The front looks like all the other Cadillacs that are out there right now. They all share the same nose. But it's like, do the engineers run out of pencils? Like, can I buy you all like refillable mechanical pencils so you can finish the back of the car? Like, what is going on these days? So according to advertisers at Cadillac, designed to energize your senses. Yeah, it makes me angry. <laughs> With the introduction of Cadillac's new design language, the lyric, show car brings the sensual and the technical together. It's the vibrant. graphic elements contrast against fluid form. The full glass two-tone roof subtly slopes, creating a fast profile while choreographed lighting and iridescent colors engage the senses. This is effortless design with a magnetic draw. I think I threw up in the back of my throat a little bit. I mean, that is the, this is like Mad Men level of advertising here because any sensical human that looks at that design goes, that car has no space in the trunk. I, I don't know. I'm curious to see it in person. Maybe it's like the Maki -E and some of these other new cars where they look better in person, but the photos do not do that lyric. And I'm going to stick with that as the pronunciation. It doesn't do it any justice whatsoever. Uh, maybe it doesn't need a large backside because it has a frunk. <gasps> oh, that makes sense. All right. There really wasn't much other on that one. It does have 19 speakers in it and active noise cancellation and 23-inch wheels. Are they Sony speakers? I don't know, but maybe. And if you got rid of the 23-inch wheels, it would look like a Volvo V70 or V90. They would be a regular wagon. Come on now. It's six inches taller because of the stupid wheels. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Ground clearance by way of diameter. All right, so what else? Oh, goodness. There was an article about the revolutionary Tesla windshield that's going to, I guess, possibly debut on the Cybertruck. So revolutionary is usually cool till it breaks, in my opinion. And there's just something about tried and true simple technology that just functions when you need it. I mean, I, I see this and then I, I painfully remember these heinous telecom phones that we use in some of our conference rooms at work. And they're modern and they're fancy and they have a touch keypad that's completely flat. Ooh, they look so nice. And guess what? It's a gigantic piece of crap that doesn't work, all right? Like, you got to press the button, the button in quotes, like, super hard and in the exact right spot. And then it still doesn't register that you're pushing the button. So then you're just pounding on the darn thing. You know what, what hardly ever fails? A friggin' raised button on the telephone. Okay, those things have lasted through the decades, okay? There's something to be said for certain technology. I don't, I don't know that it was a technology that needed to be reinvented. It was, it's literally like reinventing the wheel. So I read this article too, and God bless the guy that wrote it, and he threw the whole schematic with the patent and everything in article. there. 
it was very well written and I, I understood. And when I got to the bottom and I really stepped back and I looked at it, if anyone has ever watched the videos on YouTube about how the inside of an Etch-A-Sketch works, it is identical. It uses a similar weird pulley axial system to move these blades around. And the reason it makes sense on the Cybertruck is because the glass is completely flat. So you're trying to wipe a non-curved surface. So it's like trying to wipe down a blackboard, right? Or, or an Etch-a-Sketch screen, it's the same idea. So again, to your point, simplicity, a, a regular wiper system because of the springs and everything else and the way that the wipers are now squeegees, it would work on a Cybertruck. They do not need to reinvent the wiper blades. I'm concerned and I haven't used very many single-bladed vehicles before in my time. I know they exist, but- Mercedes. The article talked about it being a single wiper. So you have a single wiper just moving across the windscreen. If this thing isn't moving fast enough, I mean, on, on, a, on a regular car with two wipers, you're partially blinded by water because when it's on the downwipe, you suddenly have several seconds of, of rain flooding your windshield. Now, if this arm is over doing its thing on the other side of the car and the passenger screen- Six feet away. Like, I'm super blind, like a really large portion of the windshield. I mean, maybe it's the same as regular two wiper blades. I don't know. Maybe with autopilot, you don't need to worry about it because the GPS is going to drive you where you need to go, regardless of the weather conditions, right? I have to say, I'm kind of disappointed. I was expecting more from Tesla. Have you ever seen Demolition Man? Mm-hmm. And you've seen the part where that little spray can pops up out of the dirt and sprays the, the graffiti on the sign. Mm -hmm. And then like another one comes up and sprays a laser and gets rid of it. I think Tesla needs to use that technology. So it zaps the rain away with these little lasers and shit. I think I, that's what I would be expecting from Tesla. I hate to say, if you leave it up to Tesla, I think we'll all be wiping our butts with seashells. But, you know, let's leave that where it is since we're talking about Demolition Man. It doesn't really matter because people are going to throw rocks at your Cybertruck and all the windows are going to break because they're not made of bulletproof glass. True. And there's a video out there I recently watched about how strong old car glass is. I and, saw it too with the and, Volkswagen. Yeah. And guys yes. are throwing high speed baseballs at the glass repeatedly and it will not break. He so, essentially had to take a sledgehammer to, to hit it. And he had to hit it hard too because it kept bouncing off. Yeah. And that was a car from 20 years ago. To that point though, second reason that this could possibly only ever work because first it needs the flat windshield, which History has told auto manufacturers that, that doesn't work because insects can break the glass at high speed because it's more fragile. So the Cybertruck's got the flat windscreen, allegedly, but it also has the Tesla armor glass that is indestructible. So maybe it requires those two things to work. Is that like the armor glass that I put on my cell phone that after I drop my cell phone on the ground, it still breaks anyway? Uh, you know, it's that same armor glass that when he threw the, the ball at the Cybertruck on display, the glass shattered. <laughs> I've got a great idea for Tesla. Use a normal windscreen. Yeah. It works. Well, Companies have been doing it for you forever. Well, the reason they're doing this is to reduce draw that the wiper motor would pull on the batteries. They're reducing draw. They're reducing customer draw. <laughs> Yeah, that, that Cybertruck is a, a discussion for another day. But since we're talking about Teslas and wiper blades, just as an aside, you know, to make matters worse, if the new Cybertruck's Etch-A-Sketch wiper blades require you to use the tablet dashboard to activate them like a gentleman in Germany did in his Tesla 3, you may 
see yourself with a uh, citation, or if you live in Germany, you could get a one month suspension after crashing your vehicle because you were tapping on your screen repeatedly as to get your wiper blades working. So yeah, again, what's wrong with a lever on a stock on the steering column? I, I don't know. I call BS. I think that guy was playing Fruit Ninja and that's why he got in trouble. <laughs> anyway, so electric cars, sometimes they get them right. Sometimes they don't, but I think we got one here that actually defies expectations. If only it ever were to come true, which it is not going to. So <laughs> the, there was a grassroots motorsport article about an electric Trabant. So for the listeners that don't know what a Trabant is, it is a very old, <laughs> very square, very square East German car that actually, I guess, was in production until 1990. Yeah. Apparently, so from 1957 to 1990. The um, flagship of the Soviet Union. It was an amazing little vehicle. It, it was, you know, the simplicity vehicle. It was, it was interestingly, I learned a fun fact, made of plastic. <laughs> I did not know that. So Duraplast, composite thermosetting plastic, similar to Formica. Okay, it's a kitchen counter with wheels. Sounds cool. It was, it looked like a kitchen counter with wheels. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yes, the body lines are very simple. I thought it was also, also interesting that pretty much, I guess, close to 1990, 1989, they got the rights to use a Volkswagen engine in them. So that was, I guess, sadly short-lived for about a year. But anyway, somebody, and this actually was already probably about 10 years ago, tried to revive the Trabant. Some investors wanted to bring it back into modern days, so kind of a retro redo. And then- I mean, it has that pedigree and that desire and that passion that only a true enthusiast could enjoy. And if you had- That racing heritage. Oh yeah. And if you had 50 extra rubles, you would upgrade to a Lada, you know, a copy of a Fiat 128. But anyway, continue. I mean, I probably could get ragged on for my Fiat Panda obsession, so I'm sure there's somebody that- Got a Trabant obsession out there. I don't know. I mean, it kind of looks like a little mini or something like that. And the mini's better looking. <laughs> Nonetheless, so I think in 2012, the investors then tried to come up with this Trabant NT version, which allegedly, I guess, would have had a little battery inside of it to give it 100 miles of range. I'm not sure where you were going with your little Trabant. But nonetheless, they didn't get the backing for this. So, you know, that was already a while ago. So it was kind of reposted as, a, oh, hey, what would you think about this in today's, you know, burgeoning EV world? <laughs> Is there a home for an electric Trabant or not? So I, I read the article and I looked at the renderings. I like it. And to your point before, you kind of, you're on the same wavelength that I'm on, which is it looks like a sedan version of a mini. And it wasn't a hateful looking car. I could see the throwbacks to the Trabant. Although, I mean, anything is better. Any design is better than the original Trabant. So you're, you're leaps and bounds ahead of that. But it wasn't an unattractive car. And I could see its relevance in the world. It's just a matter of getting it out. It's getting it out there, right? I mean, the design fits in this cutesy EV future design that a lot of people are coming up with. I mean, it's right up there with the Gary Busey and all the ones we talked about on the last episode. Right, exactly. So, I mean, it could have a home next to your e-bussy. 100%. Maybe you could even like drive it up into the back of the flatbed version of the e-bussy. 
Nice. So your Travant with your e perfect. Not bad, though. Not bad, though. And it'd probably be cheap. Probably still made of plastic, though. But now I think it's time to make some donuts. It's time to go behind the pit wall and talk about some motorsport news. So in local news, for the listeners out there, we have 20 events left on the chin schedule for 2020. And a big shout out to Mark Hicks for coming on Break Fix earlier this month. If you haven't listened to that episode, we get behind the scenes with Mark and talk about the origin of chin and everything that goes along with that. So you can get more familiar and better acquainted with their program and the peculiarities of what they do. Meanwhile, uh, Hooked on Driving Northeast, still has three events left on their schedule, NJMP Lightning uh, in September, a newly added VIR date in the middle of October, which happens to be a week before their fall finale at Watkins Glen, which is closer to the end of October. A reminder to all the folks in the DMV and surrounding states, always check the latest COVID and health updates because many states are still not able to travel to New York. I know there's rules about, oh, well, if you're going to be there for a week or two or whatever, but places like Watkins Glen are still turning away drivers because they are checking licenses. And if you are from one of the states that is basically on the no-fly list, you will be turned away. So don't waste your time. Do your research ahead of time before going out to places like Watkins Glen, Lime Rock, and JMP etc to make sure it's okay for you to go there. Meanwhile, SCCA still has a couple of events left basically around Summit Point uh, at Shenandoah as well as over at Dominion down in Fredericksburg and the Audi Club has their fall finale at VIR in November. I'm sure there's other groups out there, you know, Track Days and, and Porsche Club, etc. We don't dive into everybody's schedules, so be sure to check Motorsport Reg for all the dates and locations uh, as those are changing as we get here closer into the fall. And then obviously everybody, you know, stay safe, wear your mask, social distance, all that kind of stuff. That is being enforced at the track, so don't forget your mask when you're out there, things of that nature. On the brighter side, things we get to look forward to in 2021 and beyond, officials are now promoting a new track, and it's actually not going to be that far away. We're talking about seven hours, maybe less, depending on how fast you tow from the D.C. area. It's going to be in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Many of you probably don't know about Oak Ridge unless you're familiar with Oak Ridge Labs, nestled between Chattanooga and, and Knoxville, basically, there on the eastern edge of Tennessee. And the track is going to be built on a 330-acre plot housing a five-mile racing circuit with 20 turns. I've looked at the maps and we're gonna post a link to it so you can check it out. The course layout looks really cool and I'm super excited that they're gonna do this. Apparently they have all the approvals. The land that it's being built on has basically been abandoned for about 25 years. Nobody wants to develop there. Nobody wants to do anything in that surrounding area. So they've gotten permission to build a racetrack and I hope we get to go there when it opens. Brad, some world news. So F1, you know, that series that we all like to either watch or sleep during, has decided that they will not be coming to the Americas, North or South America at all during the 2020 season. Thanks to COVID, they are not going to be traveling on this side of the, the pond. Instead, they're going to replace the U.S. Grand Prix, the Mexican Grand Prix, and the Brazilian Grand Prix with three new races in Europe. They're going to be doing the Nürburgring Grand Prix circuit, which they haven't had a race there since 2013. 
They're also going to be doing Emola and Portima. So for all those listeners that were looking forward to going to a Grand Prix uh, this year, you better get your plane tickets to go across the ocean because you're not going to be able to uh, on this side of the Atlantic. And then the next story I'm going to talk about is less about news and more just something that's kind of interesting. So I'm going to ask a question. What is the best color in motorsports? Black. Well, you would say black. Uh, manufacturers would say bright colors that help them sell their cars, you know, liveries and things like that. Drivers would say the checkered flag, black and white. But manufacturers, they say, or, and team coaches and team principals, it's the gray, the gray color, the gray area between the rule books and cheating. Oh, 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 oh man. <laughs> so in, in light of the, the recent events with Force India, uh, and the 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 cheating the uh, alleged, alleged alleged cheating going on with their team you know, they, they've got all kinds of you know investigations going on or we're going to talk about a couple of stories from history in the motorsports world where teams you know cheated got away with it for a little bit you know had a lot of success until they got caught so the first one eric it, might know about does it start with lotus oh, i'm so excited no, it does not start with Lotus. It actually starts with a Toyota Celica back in, back in 1995, the World Rally Championship. So I figured you might know about this one. The World Rally Championship authorities said the drivers and they said that the cars had to have restrictor plates. Well, Toyota manufactured these, these little spring mechanisms that while under load, they would push the restrictor plates open just enough to get a little additional air through. But then, you know, coming off throttle and, and coming back into the pits after, after the racing or whatever, the, the pressure would be taken off the springs or they could take the pressure off the springs and the restrictor plate would go back into the legal limits. The next story is about NASCAR and a driver by the name of Smokey Eunuch. His cars. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, his name uh, his name is Smokey Eunuch. You gotta be kidding me, right? No, it's brilliant, brilliant. It's not spelled like you would spell Eunuch. It's Y U N I C. But anyway, he got his cars. He got his cars from Chevrolet. He drove a Chevy Chevelle uh, in the '67 and '68 NASCAR series. But he did all kinds of little things to his car to make it kind of questionable whether it was legal or not. He had the bottom undercarriage smoothed so it didn't have all the little imperfections and everything so it made it more slippery he had a tube frame welded completely to the frame of the car so it was kind of i guess the first integrated. you know uh, it, yeah the, the first integrated version of the the tube frame chassis uh, he had the chrome front bumper was deepened to act as an air dam he had the rain gutters and the glass gutters and glass trim and everything were made to be flush with the rest of the body of the car so really there was nowhere for the air to go but around it it just, it, it made the car super slippery and super fast. And NASCAR caught him and then he was in trouble. But I think my favorite parts about this story. And not his it. name, Smokey Eunuch, because that is just amazing. <laughs> my favorite part about this story was the fuel tank. So he got in trouble for the fuel tank. Uh, I guess he was carrying too much fuel. NASCAR took the fuel tank out of the car to inspect it further. While the fuel tank was removed from the car, he was able to start it and drive it back to his pit because apparently he used thicker than usual fuel lines. So they held up to, fuel. they held up to two to five gallons 
more fuel, which allowed him to have fewer pit stops and everything. So that's my favorite part. A quote from his autobiography, somebody asked him, was this car a cheater, Smokey? And he said, you goddamn right it was. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Honesty to the very end. (laughs) So moving on uh, to Formula One, which we touched on earlier, Red Bull Racing flirted with the gray area and racing a little bit. Back in 2011 to 2014, where they had that front wing uh, on the RB7 cars. Now, these are the cars that Sebastian Vettel drove during his uh, four-time championships with the team. And the RB7 car had a flexible front wing. So what this means is at, you know, paddock speeds and driving around, you know, for inspection and everything, the wing was in one one position. It was, uh, you know, a certain height above the road, as was legal by a the FIA, uh, you know, regulations, but at speed, the wing would get closer to the ground, which would allow the car to, I guess, handle better. The aerodynamics were better. It would be faster. And this gave, you know, Red Bull an advantage, you know, and then eventually they got caught uh, and then therefore they got penalized and and the the wing was deemed to be uh, not valid. Moving on, you know, uh, Formula One, again, uh, back in 1981, this is with the Brabham BT49C. They had hydro pneumatic suspension. It was suspension that was half filled with air and half filled with hydraulic fluid. So what it would do is driving around the paddock and everything, it was just normal ride height. Once the card was up to speed, the aerodynamic downforce provided by the front and rear wings would push down the body, expelling just enough of the cylinder's contents to the central reservoir, thereby lowering the ride height. The car would remain in its lowered state until the end of the race. And then once you were coming back into the paddock, all that, you know, the contents would go back to the suspension, raising the, the ride height again back to the legal limit. You know, this was when, uh, when PK won the championship. He won in 1981. They were caught halfway through the season. Uh, and then uh, essentially they lost their advantage because other teams were like, hey, we can do that too. And they started, you know, playing with the rules and stuff. Well, there is an upside to all that, let's call it alleged cheating, is that a, that pushing the boundary to win, to, to get that competitive advantage, usually trickles down years later into production cars because that, you know, hy- hydro-pneumatic suspension and all that, we take advantage of that on, on road cars now with even the magneto suspensions and air ride and all that kind of stuff. And so all of these guys, you know, may, maybe they wear the scarlet letter, but at the end of the day, they were pioneers of automotive engineering and we've reaped the benefits decades later of, of them pushing the boundaries. So, I mean, I don't fault them so much and I'm sure whatever's going on with Force India will have a rippling effect later and, you know, the next Toyota Yaris that debuts will have some technology from maybe that Formula One car. Who knows, right? On the other side of the pond, on our side, there's, you know, big, big race just happened. The weekend of August 23rd was the Indy 500, right? The Indy 500 usually happens Memorial Day weekend, but thanks to COVID, it was punted all the way to the end of August. And I have a feeling most of us probably forgot about it because Penske pulled the plug uh, late July reversing their course and saying the Indy 500 is closed to fans because originally it was going to be one of the first big races to reopen with full grandstands and said they pulled that away. In addition to that, it was the first Indy 500 without a woman driver in the field since the year 2000. So there's been a female driver in, in the Indy 500 since 2000 up until this year. 
And, you know, that goes back to a previous episode we did, you know, about the gentleman driver and getting sponsorship and all that kind of thing. We debated that and, and about, you know, females in motorsport. So that's an interesting story uh, there too. And we posted the link for that if you want to dive into that a little bit more. But it posed the question, you know, I know, granted, we were busy at the track and we're going to talk about that a little bit more here towards the end of the segment, you know, this past weekend when the Indy 500 was going on, but I didn't even hear anybody talk about it around the paddock. Like, it just seemed off. Like, did anybody even care? The only time I heard about it was from Sam when I was getting ready to leave. And he asked me if I was going to try and find it on the radio. Uh, up to that point, I had no idea what was going on. But I'm not that big of an Indy car fan. So I'm not surprised that I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. It's a shame, though. And I hope next year's better and we all get back in the groove. And, and you know, we haven't lost that enthusiasm about racing in some of the larger events. But that doesn't seem to have stopped the crazies over at MotoGP, has it, Tanya? No, they were still racing. And uh, I think, was it last weekend, I guess, at the Austria uh, GP race, there was a massive crash. Well, I guess what could have been a, a very massive crash. So two of the riders, Morbidelli and Zarco, collided with each other, which caused Morbidelli's bike to keep going down the track. And the Austrian track is not well known for its safety, if you will particularly for motorcycles. There were no barriers to prevent the motorcycle from continuing its path of travel and continue it it did. Straight across, you know, all the sand trap, the grass, back out on the track, right as Vinales and Rossi were coming out of the turn. And his bike, if there was a paper between his bike flying in front of Rossi, that was a lot of a lot of space. There's a video um, that you can watch. They kind of cover se- several angles and, and go through it a, a few times. And, and at first you're like, oh, okay, big deal. And then you kind of see the different angles and you're like, oh my goodness. He's so lucky. They're both lucky that they didn't get completely taken out, wiped out by a motorcycle that's probably still traveling at close to 200 miles an hour just across the ground, right? A projectile coming at them. I mean, scary. Those guys, without a doubt, are just a different caliber of racer to do what they do that close to the ground without, you know, a metal cage around them by any means. So, you know, hats off to their bravery and they're just full send. Very lucky. Glad to see that nobody was seriously injured. I say it about hockey players all the time and the same rings true for motorcyclists, uh, MotoGP riders, they are a complete different species. They are not human. I mean, if you think about like the, all the crashes and stuff that happened at the Isle of Man during the time trials they run there and how many people die or get seriously injured year in and year out, and yet they still show up, what is it, hundreds of riders every single year to test and to tempt fate you know, to try and set the best times. It's just that it's ludicrous what these guys go through. Same with hockey players and, and, you know, against other sports. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people say, you know, IndyCar is the best thing on TV. Uh, NASCAR is the best thing on TV. I mean, I'm a big fan of WRC, but I mean, my dad used to be a big MotoGP Superbike fan and he graduated into that. And he was like, man, none of this other racing even holds a candle to what the guys on the bikes do. So if you're looking for something different and something really exciting, start watching MotoGP and start watching Superbike because it is out of this world crazy. And you definitely won't be put to sleep like watching any of those F1 races. That is for sure. But speaking of Formula One and kind of stepping back in time, another article that came across our desk was machine learning reveals the fastest F1 driver of the past 40 years. And I said, 
Yeah, exactly. Sad trombone. I said to myself, who cares, right? Because it's like comparing apples and chainsaws. I mean, this was the premise of the Fangio documentary that I, that I reviewed a couple months back. If anybody searches our website and looks it up, it's under must-see documentaries. And it was the whole thing. Oh, we're going to talk to all these people. We're going to run machine learning algorithms. And at the end of the day, Fangio is the best driver of all time. But and it's an economy of scale. So Senna was the best. Is he better than Schumacher? Yes, because Schumacher wasn't as good when Schumacher and Senna ran together. But is Hamilton as good as Senna or, or vice versa? You know, Senna was better than Emerson Fittipaldi. You know, it, but it's like, who cares? At the end of the day, realistically, the only thing that matters is the number of wins you have. And you know, Schumacher still holds the title for the most championships until that gets, you know, it's like Babe Ruth in baseball until you beat it or, or whoever, then it doesn't really matter. And they do this, like you just said, in baseball, they do this in every sport. I mean, what was it a couple years ago, five years ago, they did this in horse racing and they ran a simulation. Now, granted the variables in F1 racing are significantly more than in horse racing In horse racing, essentially you have the horses and the track. And with the exception of weather, it's the same conditions every single time. But with you got different cars, you got different competition. Uh, it's it's just completely it's yeah. it, it's an asinine comparison. They do it in basketball. Was Kobe the best ever? Is you know Jordan the best ever? Or is it someone from before? You know, in baseball, like you said, Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, are they the best? Or is it the Barry Bonds and and them? Exactly. It's just it's these comparisons. They're really just to their their fan service and the fans of the whoever you know they're gonna debate because they have a favorite absolutely but there's one superstar that we cannot contest and tanya's gonna tell us about him mr tom cruise so this is is, this is old news quite frankly but it kind of i don't remember why it came up in the gtm conversation at some point something came up about tom cruise and was like yeah tom cruise there's a picture of him at summit <laughs> and yes there is there's a picture of him and uh the late great paul newman um hanging in the shea kitchen shea summit that's some main raceway but um before his days of thunder tom actually tried his hand at a little bit of, of race car driving and i believe paul newman kind of helped him a little bit he was driving newman sharp sponsored nissan at one point and there's a Jalopnik article that actually goes through this and it, again it, it's called old news because it was released all the way back in 2010 but um, obviously the story isn't going to change and I'm going to quote a lot out of it because I think it, it's better told that way you know he had he had his racing career and I will say there's a couple of YouTube videos of, of real live footage of him racing at Summit Point and everything and it's pretty interesting to watch and listen to the very dramatic announcer announcing the race and and there's a few clips of them kind of interviewing Tom and whatnot in the paddock in that one YouTube video clip they're talking about I guess in his first year he had won he had 16 starts won four races okay he was doing something out there and then that second year I think is when he moved up classes and was in the the Nissan 300ZX Nissan and you know at one point I guess they called in or they were interviewing uh, this gentleman Roger French who at the time was a regional champion with SCCA and they were kind of asking hey hey look at this you look at some footage of of Tom driving what do you think (laughs) and Mr. French there says doesn't look too good (laughs) 
so there, there's clue number one. He was eating ice cream. <laughs> so he said, this is a quote, in the car he was very aggressive. I was trying to hold him back so he could learn in stages, but he wanted to go fast. It's in his nature. His attitude was go fast all the time. So he was a full send kind of guy. That's my kind of driver right there. And if you watch some of the video replays, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of him going sideways. <laughs> a couple spins in there. Oh, yeah. The video we're posting with this show is excellent uh, summarization of Tom Cruise's SCCA career. I mean, the article is he earned the nickname "See Cruise Crash Again," so there's something going on with his driving style right there in the headline of this article. Overall, it's kind of describing him as a nice guy, and you know, he's really into the into that racing life at that time he was there. So he was trying to be dedicated to the sport when he was there. He just wasn't, you know, there to get some photos or anything. He he wanted to talk the talk and do all that stuff. But another quote from this gentleman: He didn't seem to put my advice into practice very much, but he was a really good guy. When he was in the world of racing, he was in the world of racing. For his part, he just fit right in. He was serious about racing, and that's all he wanted to talk about. You just really had the feeling that once he closed the visor, he was back to being aggressive. So at the end of the day, you see his driving style. You kind of hear someone who was trying to coach him. He was a difficult student, is what we would probably say. You know, he, he, he was trying to to do his own thing. These are my takeaways from, from reading and watching the videos. That confidence and aggressive behavior probably overshadowed any possible talent he had and it just didn't develop. And, and who's to say like, you know, his acting career was taking off and you, you have to make choices in the path you want to take in life. And clearly he opted maybe it was a better choice to go down the, uh, the movie side of things. Depends if you're a fan or not. It's questionable, some of the movies. But I don't know, it's interesting. Very cool. So with that, we move into our next section. Would you like some fries with that? So Tanya, kick us off. Back to Florida. There's a lot of nice, fine people in Florida. And we're not trying to, you know, poke fun at Floridians. There's crazy people in every state, in every part of the world that do some very crazy things. And, you know, this just happens that again, it's another Florida man. And, you know, he wanted a Porsche, he wanted a 911 Turbo, and, you know, perhaps he didn't have the 140 grand for it, but he had the $75 for a home printer. <laughs> so, you know, what do you do? I mean, you just print a cashier's check for 140 grand, and you walk into the dealer, and you buy yourself a 911 Turbo. Makes total sense. And then seems, you seems legit. three Rolexes with more printed checks. And then, of course, because you bought a $75 printer, and I don't know if you bought a $75 printer. You get caught <laughs> and you get arrested and you very likely go to jail for fraudulent activities and check forging and all sorts of good stuff. <laughs> so needless to say, he was caught. Short-lived. I hope he enjoyed the, the two days he had to 9-11. I mean, there is all sorts of wrong with this equation from not just the printing of the check but the people that accepted it, the dealership and everything else. I mean, it's just mind boggling. And again, not trying to single out Florida because, but the stuff that goes on down there, you can't, you can't make this up. What, maybe it was a really good printer. I don't know. I mean, usually the cashier's checks and things of that, I mean, checks in general, I mean, have certain marks, watermark. They use a special magnetic ink. 
There you go. So again, it all comes full circle. You take apart the Etch-A-Sketch to use the parts to repair your Cybertruck, use the magnet aluminum magnetic powder inside the Etch-A-Sketch to make your, your check that you bought the printer from Best Buy so you can go buy your Sony Vision S. You see it all, it's all full circle. It's turtles all the way down from here. And then with your Best Buy rewards points, you can turn around and buy the PlayStation 5 put in your Sony Vision S. There you go. We have connected all the dots now. So what else is going on in Florida? Anything? So this one is quite good and it's worth a look at the image. So it's a very short article and our southern friends at Wink News, Southwest Florida's leading news, posted this article about a Florida man seen on video riding on the hood of a truck down a busy highway. And I would like to point out that it's not just a truck, like ain't no Ford F-150 or Chevy. This is a freaking semi-truck, okay? <laughs> and according to the picture, he's only wearing underwear. He's sunbathing. <laughs> I noticed that too. I was like, wow. At least I hope it's underwear and not blurred out. But at any rate, Totally great underwear. And I'm going to read this article. Florida man went for a nine mile ride down a busy highway, but in a highly unusual fashion on the hood of a tractor trailer. The South Florida Sun Sentinel reported that the unidentified man climbed onto the hood Saturday after stopping his vehicle along Florida's turnpike and walking out onto the highway. The Florida Highway Patrol says the tractor trailer driver continued on down the road as the man clung to the hood and began pounding on the windshield with his fists and his forehead. Eventually, a trooper stopped the tractor trailer and took the man into custody. He was committed for a 72-hour mental health evaluation under the state's Baker Act. No serious injuries were reported. To say, if he has a mental health issue, that that's nothing to make fun of, and I hope he gets the help that he needs, because that's very serious. That aside, what the hell was the tractor trailer driver doing? Like, why did you keep going for nine miles? That guy, that guy was standing his ground. Maybe. Florida's got that stand your ground law. I bet that's what he was doing. Maybe they were reenacting the scene from Indiana Jones, where he crawls up from underneath of the Nazi, you know, military truck and then ends up on the windshield. I will say there was some other crazy stuff that happened in Florida this past month. It involved inebriation golf carts and riding lawnmowers and the riding lawnmower was going down the highway <laughs> <laughs> so public service announcement please do not operate any sort of motorized vehicle under the influence of drugs or alcohol please Here, full stop but with that being said i can explain our next story which is a square body hauls thirty-two thousand pounds What's a square body? Shame it. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell you what, I started watching this video and I got about 30 seconds in and my brain started to melt. And then I realized Mountain Man Dan is going to be so proud of this. So I got to watch this video because it involves square bodies. And I'm like, all right, I'm in it. And then I realized it's 20 minutes long. And I'm like, I'm like, holy cow, where are we going? So the moral to the story is if you want to understand the phrase more money than brains. He can't have that much money. He's got a square body. All right, hold up. 
He bought a retired fire truck, bright red, all the decals on the side, paid 15 grand for a square body. And it's mint, lifted. I mean, they showed pictures of it underneath. All the parts have been replaced. Manual transmission, rebuilt 350, all this stuff. I mean, this, tr this truck was ready to go. But I'm looking at this thing for, for what it is, being as, as old as this, it's a great truck. 15 grand, maybe a little bit much to spend on it. And then this guy, younger gentleman, he decides, well, we did a test on another episode where we wanted to see how much a Ford F-150 diesel or whatever it was could tow to its absolute limit. And apparently this gentleman is not a fan of the square body. And he tells you that pretty much when, within the first minute of the video. And he says, I want to prove or disprove whether or not these trucks are really all that they're cracked up to be because square body owners are religious. As we know, Mount Mandan is. Those trucks can do anything. They can go anywhere. There will be one in space next to the Tesla Roadster. It'll be flying rust though, but you know, hey, whatever. He decides, okay, I'm gonna make sides for the bed and I'm gonna fill it with firewood. Cool. I was like, well, to me, that does not seem like 16 tons of wood. Nope, that was to level the bed with the roof so that he could then proceed to put logs, telephone poles, and all sorts of trees on top of the truck and then strap it down with chains to the body and see how far he could drive. Once they realized they had forward motion, then it was time to do all sorts of crazy things. So I'm not gonna spoiler alert, but you need to watch the video and watch it through the end because there's even stuff in the outtakes of the video that are just mind-bogglingly stupid. But I will say, it has left me with a new impression of the square body. Those trucks are amazing. I would say they're right up there with the Toyota Hilux. You cannot kill one as hard as these guys try, but you will lose brain cells by the end of that 20 minute period. It is absolutely bonkers. All right, and on that, it's time for some random car adjacent news. So let's order up some golden nuggets. First up, many of you may or may not know, the DeLorean Motor Company still exists. It is based out of Texas, and they are still working on developing a new version of the DeLorean. And we wrote about this in, a, in an article earlier this year that Mountain Man Dan put together because he's a big fan of the DeLorean. But you can now own your own time machine. And I'm not talking about a Goldwing stainless steel car. No. Texas-based DMC Motors has licensed the rights to the UK-based Charlie Foxtrot watches to release a line of DeLorean-inspired DMC watches. And so the website is dmc-watch.com. They have seven different styles, and they clock in, haha, pun intended, between $130 and $150 US. So they're really affordable. They're actually very stylish. All of the bezels are stainless steel, and you can check them out on the website. Really cool stuff. I'm actually thinking about picking one up. So yes, you can now own your own DeLorean at a very affordable price, unlike the DeLoreans that are going to be coming out of Texas, which will probably have a sticker price well above $100,000. Do they come with a line of Coke? <laughs> That's the DeLorean S model. The, the oh, excuse me. <laughs> what else do we got in there, Tanya? somebody posted from road and track don't use brake clean to clean everything in your shop probably most people have brake clean or maybe use gum out instead i mean at the end of the day it's a chemical 
there's always going to be a warning label saying there's potential for causing cancer and brake clean's no different. I mean, honestly, you should always use brake clean or gum out or any of those solvents in a well-ventilated area. I mean, I, I tend to use gum out, which is basically acetone. Yeah, aerosol nail polish or remover. So, you know, I'm a little less concerned about acetone, but at the end of the day, you're under the car and you're spraying stuff down and that vapor cloud is hanging over your head. You start choking and you start nose burning and, and whatnot. I mean, it's not good for you. It's not healthy. So, I mean, the verdict, I don't think is a solid, you spray it on your hands and you're going to die. You're in a room where it's in the air, you're going to die. I think it all comes down to prolonged exposure and how you're getting exposed to it. Obviously don't inhale it. Don't ingest it in any other form. You know, be sensible about when you're using chemicals. Yeah, and I, and I don't have the chemistry background that you do, and I don't think of a lot of our listeners probably realize that yet about your background. That you know, that's the industry you're in, you know, in, the, in the chemicals industry. I've always shied away from brake clean because the way I understood it is it's a formulation of bleach and the same chemicals they use for dry cleaning. And it's one of those things that is extremely harmful. And to your point, gum out or equivalent carbon choke cleaners, which are acetone based, are not good for you either, but less harmful or carcinogenic, et cetera, compared to brake clean. So I, I shy away from it, but I think the article was well written and it explains why you shouldn't. And if you're concerned, you know, what you have in your cabinet and you've never really thought about it before, I would recommend reading the article and getting a little bit more familiar with the solvents you do use. And I would say if you're a DIY mechanic and you're doing a lot of cleaning, look into mineral spirits that do not have vapors in the same way as like an aerosol based cleaner does that, you know, with a proper wash tank and things like that. If you're doing a lot of heavy cleaning, especially if it's parts that are off of the car and, you know, obviously if it's something under the vehicle that you can't dismantle, that's, that makes it difficult. You need a spray, but even then you can put mineral spirits in a spray bottle, like an old Windex bottle or something like that and, and have the same effect, right? It cleans. I, I find the mineral spirits cleans up oils, spills really well. That was one of the use cases in the article, but I also looked at it and went, well, you could buy a $5 bag of kitty litter and just let it sit there, sop it up and then sweep it away. But, you know, wear a mask when you're sweeping that too, because all that dust is not good for your lungs. So again, be safe. And in the day and now in the days of COVID where we're all wearing masks, remember to wear a mask when you're doing something in the garage that involves chemicals, vapors, etc. But is brake clean still the best for cleaning your brakes and preparing your, your new brakes to go on the car. I can do the same thing with gum out. I just okay. prefer gum out and it evaporates quicker. Like I find brake clean to be a little oilier in my opinion, you know, a little more just wetter. I don't know. I, it's hard to explain. I, I just find that gum out evaporates quicker, dries cleaner, but gum out, you have to be really, really careful because it will strip paint and it will melt plastics. Right. Cause that's at the, one of the things of acetone nail polish remover, right? So anyway, but we could we could diverge on that forever. Anything you want to add to that, Tanya? I mean, chlorinated things generally aren't necessarily safe <laughs> or, or, or healthy for the body. Some things excluded like table salt, which has chlorine in it, but that's a whole other compound that's, that's safe. I mean, it, again, it just comes down to proper handling of it, good ventilation, and you, you don't want to let it sit there and be on your body or, or anything like that. I mean, if you got it in your eye, you need to take, you know, 15 minutes of flushing your eyes um, with water and, yeah. you know, seek medical attention, all that stuff, wash it off your 
part of the problem is like it can absorb into bloodstream and, and cause issues like that, which are health issues, which are bad. Well, switching gears to a little lighter subject, a lot of us have probably already started thinking about the holidays and thinking about Christmas shopping. And we do put together a holiday shopping list at GTM every year. We've been doing it kind of as a tradition now for several years. And one of the things that just came across my desk, the post office has released for the first time Hot Wheels inspired stamps. So you can start using those on your Christmas cards as you're getting prepared. Since we're talking about the post office a little bit. They've also issued a small little die cast matchbox size postal jeep that you can buy for $5.99 and I think they have a larger semi-truck option which is about 30 bucks and the money goes to helping USPS out so if you're into again collecting the little matchbox hot wheels type cars you could add a USPS postal truck to your collection very cool so switching gears a little bit we want to talk about a documentary that Brad actually brought to our attention not too long ago. We're not going to go in deep like we do on a lot of other movies, but I was really surprised to review Brock, which is considered a two-part miniseries. It was available on Netflix. It's now available on Amazon Prime for you to review. It's all about the famous Australian driver, Peter Perfect, also known as Peter Brock. And it starts with his uh, early days driving Austin A30s, you know, how he got hooked up with the Holden racing team and all that and his career and his separation from GM in the, in the middle 80s, not to give away the whole story. But Peter Perfect, outside of having most wins at the Bathurst 12-hour race or the Bathurst Endurance race, he's basically the creator of HSV or Holden Special Vehicles, right? So that was a specific branch of GM Australia that they let him spin off at the, that we know today, which now we know that Holden has been officially, you know, retired. And we heard, we learned that from Mike Crutchfield earlier this month. So really cool movie to tie back into some of the things that Mike was talking about. Unlike a typical documentary, it was a dramatization, which was cool. So they're real actors playing the parts and some people you may recognize, other people you may not, playing the parts of all the different people, you know, be it uh, Peter Brock, be it his manager and some, you know, the racers that he was with, et cetera. I found it fun, even though it was three hours long, the three hours went by really fast and it was, it was a good movie overall. I, but one of the cool things that they did was they actually interlaced real footage into the movie footage with some CGI to simulate, you know, the actor being there as Peter Brock. And that was seamless, absolutely beautiful, very well done. So that made things move along really well. And it made the storytelling, I thought, more profound because it was a dramatization and not a documentary with a narrator or anything like that. So good story, worth checking out, free on Amazon Prime uh, if you have access to it. In addition to that of movies, when we posted links to these on the follow-on article to this episode, you can watch the new viral video that's going, going around about a guy who mounts a GoPro inside of his wheel and drives down the road. So you actually get to see how a tire works from the inside. I don't know about you guys, but I thought it was interesting, but also not at the same time. <laughs> I mean, it was anticlimactic in a way. I mean, it's a fixed camera position, so it was really hard to to see all the possible deflections and whatnot. And I don't know that uh, it's been a while since I watched it, but it felt like he just kind of drove slowly around the blocks a few times. I don't know. And then there were potholes or, you know, small potholes on those roads, but 
I don't know, it would have been cool kind of to see it go over a speed bump or really aggressively take a, a corner. I think he did at one point just kind of like quickly take off and make a, a turn, but it would have been interesting to really see an aggressive turn to see how the tire reflects. Yeah, I think I would have liked to have seen that video redone maybe with a slightly higher profile tire because I think that was the worry is that if because it was such a low profile tire, it probably crushed the camera. But I think on a higher profile tire on a racetrack, that would be really cool to see the deflection and the side, the sidewalls moving and all that kind of stuff on a proper race course, you know, what it's like when you hit a curb at the racetrack, stuff like that. So we'd also learn how hot a GoPro can get. Uh, that is true. That is very true. In addition to kind of cool movies that are out there, I posted links to a guy that built a working Lego rotary motor. All these cool light effects and he hooked up the spark plugs and he walks you through the build. And it really kind of put into perspective, if you're not into rotaries, like how a Wankel engine works and, you know, uh, how it's designed to work and at high speed you can really see it uh, with all the articulation like how it actually functions so if you're if you want to learn something different I would definitely check that out and but it's really cool to see the imagination and the creativity and the time that people put into building that kind of stuff and on the opposite extreme of that there's a gentleman in the UK who has become very famous for 3D printing large-scale Legos and he just recently put together a double XL go-kart. And it looks like a giant Lego Technic go-kart and it's powered by an electric motor. And he walks you through some testing and things like that of this prototype that he built. He gets it up to 31 miles an hour in a, in a straight line drag race. But unfortunately it corners like- kinda, Like a brick? Kind of terribly. <laughs> and the reason being, he became, and, and it was cool because the tires he has look like Lego tires. I mean, it's legit, right? The problem is so he- they were plastic tires, but like legit were, hard plastic? They were, no, they were, they were rubber tires, but they look like the, the knobby Lego tires like we're used to. The, everything, the steering wheel, it was all Technic. The, the whole rack and pinion was a giant gear. I mean, when you see the video, you're like, wow, that's really cool. The problem was, and I guess him not being a car guy, this is where I saw the design fall apart. Yes, it's a go-kart. Yes, it goes straight. Yes, it turns. The brakes were still a little suspect. The whole engine stuff was really cool, but he never thought to put a differential in it. So it turns like a brick. I mean, it, it will not turn. And then what they did was they sped up the video to make it look like it's turning. But in an outtake at the very end, you can hear him going, this thing will not turn. And he's doing like one mile an hour because the rear wheels are locked and it's just basically hopping around. It, it, it's pretty bad. So apparently he's going to try to redesign the rear end to have a differential. And then they're going to try again and put it on a legitimate go-kart track and test it against real go-karts to see how it holds up. So I'm actually waiting to see that video come out and that seems really cool but if you're interested this guy has got a pretty pretty good following and we posted the video to that brad you had something i think in there we consider a golden nugget so a guy up in canada essentially spent one hundred and forty thousand dollars rebuilding and, and putting his own twist on a mark one gti i mean and that leaves me with a very big why I mean, don't get me wrong. I love and I'm nostalgic and I wax poetic over the Mark One GTIs, but 140 grand, really? It, it was it was about 200 grand in total if you include all the tools and stuff that he had to buy, and he spent about 12,000 hours 
of labor going through this car. Now it's really cool. It's got a high compression 16 valve engine. Uh, he bumped it up to 2.1 liters, completely redid the interior with period correct colors and, uh, and fabrics and everything. It's got 220 horsepower, all motor, KW V3 coilovers. It's got Mark II GTI transmission. He's got 14 inch wheels that hide four piston brakes. It's got carbon fiber bits, carbon fiber hood and hatch. Um, so he, he spent some time and, and did a really good job on it. But the real question is just why? why I know, because it? all the stuff you listed sounds like a, let's call it a $30,000 Mark One GTI I would see at VAG Fair. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know, like where did he sink? Is he factoring in his labor? I mean, I don't know. I just want to know what it sells for and bring a trailer at the end well, of the day. In, well, in the article, there is a 122-page write-up of everything that he did. And then there's also a documented 180 different videos kind of showcasing the how-tos and, and everything he did. And a lot of that 140 grand goes into his one-off research and development. So he's including his R&D cost uh, into building this car. Got it. Okay. He sold it. He sold it to a couple up in, uh, in, in Canada. Uh, and he's got a couple other projects that he's looking to do. I guess the bigger question is, is this in Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars? The article did not say. Mm. But he's got two other projects. The first project is he, he hasn't started them yet, but he wants to do e-mini bikes. Um, so he wants to electrify some of the, uh, the 70s, like banana bikes that you used to see running around. And he also wants to build a Tesla Model 3 for the track, probably so he can beat that 911 GT3 finally. Yeah, Pikes Peak, baby. <laughs> Uh, last thing in this segment. So an article came across our desk, thanks to Sam. It really explains why software developers choose what they choose. They build a simulation game, especially a racing game. I thought it was actually quite interesting. I won't bore you guys with the details. We will post the link to the article, but basically it comes down to processing power and concessions, right? They can only simulate so much and only give you so much realism based on, you know, technology that we have, processing power. And then there's a gameplay aspect to it, right? So if you make it too difficult, nobody wants to play it, you make it too easy, then it's just for, for kids. It's like Mario Kart. So there's a lot of that going back and forth and they try to make everybody happy. So I know we complain a lot about certain games. Oh, Forza doesn't have this and Project Cars doesn't have that. And then this one has, you know, the other thing. It, at the end of the day, it's all about compromises. So if you're interested in getting that backstory, check out the link to that article. I, I found it to be interesting just to kind of nerd out on. So now we come to our final segment, the secret sauce, where we cover some quickly cover some internal GTM news. So I'll start out a couple shout outs for upcoming podcast episodes. You guys will hear after this airs. We want to say thank you to Joe Obernberger, Baron Mills, and Travis Dixon from SCCA. We want to say thank you to Mark Francis from OG Racing. And we want to do a quick summer bash roundup. We want to shout out to Mountain Man Dan and Matt Wood, our region chiefs for the mountain region for organizing and putting together Summer Bash 6 at Pit Race. It's the first time we had that not at Summit Point or in the DMV. So event went off without a hitch. We had really, really good weather. We had a really good turnout, over 20 GTM members there. Karting event was fantastic. Congratulations to Sam Harrington for winning. I'm not gonna boast, but I did qualify on pole. So John Cafisi, if you hear that, I went faster than Pete. So, you know, we're, we're, we're officially putting that out there. Pete also cheated and dabbled in that gray area with his four 
47 second run. Yeah, that's true. That got disqualified, but, (laughs) (laughs) but the, the carding event was a huge success. We also have to a big shout out to Lauren Thompson, who's our newest member from the mountain region who also catered our Saturday night party, which was awesome. So big thank you to her and also welcoming aboard Andrew Mulreen, who's a longtime friend of Andrew Bank. And we welcome him to the DMV region. So that's putting us well into the 70s in terms of our membership size. And we are looking to grow. We do get uh, membership requests all the time. Just for listeners who are out there, you know, we like to meet you guys. We like to make sure that you're active participants in the group and you want to be part of the bigger GTM family. We've set up some different ways for you to get to know part of the team, especially now during COVID and when there's less and less events going on. So if you're interested in in learning more about us, visit the website and, and don't be bashful to apply. We'd also like to give a shout out to Matteo Fontana for developing the new GTM store, which is set to release in September. And we'll have more on that later. And then some more shout outs. Big shout out to Mark Hicks from Chin Track Days for coming on the show and talking to us and giving us that whole backstory. We want to shout out to Harry Brill and Rob Lors for uh, participating in our What Should I Buy Wagons edition. To Mike Crutchfield for his two-part story, uh, Storytime with Crutch, and the Kiwis and Coffee episode that aired earlier this month. To the Latin lads, John and Steve Wade, whose episode aired last week. And our new Patreons for the month of August, Peter Bank. Jason Duncan. John Richter. Gordon Bell. Tom Wendy. Matt Small. And again... You know, GTM is fueled by volunteers, so please consider signing up. It really helps groups like us grow. You know, without your support, we could not do what we do. And of course, I think we have one final shout out, Brad. I guess we should say thank you and shout out to Tanya. Yeah, I mean, you know. What you guys don't realize is she does a lot of work. This drive-through series that we put together is really inspired by her. And she's done a really good job of kind of formulating these segments and collecting the data and making sure that this goes off without a hitch. And we could not do this without her. And we're looking forward to doing more of these episodes and hearing more about all the people from Florida that, that, she's, that she's researching. So thanks, Tanya, for doing this for us. And Thank again, you, Tanya. You're welcome. <laughs> and again, to all the members who support GTM, We couldn't do this without you guys. So thank you all for your support. And on that note, I think it's time to end. What do you think, think guys? I think so. All right. August is in the bag. Let's see what September brings us. Well, here we are in the drive-thru line. Me and her. Cars in front of us, cars in back of us, all just waiting to order. There's some idiot in a Volvo with his bright sun behind me. I lean out the window and scream, hey, whatcha trying to do blind me? My wife says maybe we should talk. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey listeners, Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? 
Great, so do we, and we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no annual fee organization, but we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help.